as we continue our series through the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Tonight we come to the topic of assurance of grace and salvation. We'll, Lord willing, be getting a lot more in depth with this kind of thing in our Sabbath school series upcoming here, but our starting point this evening will be with John's first epistle, 1 John, <coughs> excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, we'll read the first six verses here. This is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle John to write. So this is one of the later epistles, later books of the New Testament. As John was the only one of the apostles really to live into old age and to die of old age himself. As the early church fathers attested, he lived up into, at least into the 90s of the first century. And so we read here, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, this is the word of God. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And that ends the reading of God's holy word for us, at least at this point. Let's pray as we come to the time of our sermon this evening. Lord, we thank you again for your written word, that you have given us this infallible rule and guide for our lives, that we might know you by it and know ourselves all the better. We pray that you would grant that by your Holy Spirit we might be using it to amend our lives, to walk more after our perfect Savior Jesus Christ, that we might have assurance that indeed we are your children and therefore act as our Heavenly Father, bearing your image even as Jesus Christ most perfectly bore it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, last week, of course, we had an afternoon service downstairs. But two weeks ago, last time we were here with this topical series, uh, we saw that even the true believer, saved in Jesus Christ, might seem for a time to fall away by falling into egregious sin, by letting particularly maybe one particular sin dominate his life for a time, maybe simply living more generally like unbelievers in the world for a time, but of course will always be restored. We had previously seen that it's possible sometimes that unsaved people, by God's common grace, might do apparently good things, and that it's possible for people to make false professions of faith, and for a time seem to be bearing fruit, seem to be faithful. 
So that leaves us with the conundrum, how do we know the difference? Not only how can I tell if you are in Christ, how can I tell if I am? How can I have assurance that I'm not just fooling myself and that I won't turn out to be like one of those who on the last day Christ says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. How do we know the difference? How do I know if I'm truly saved? How how do I know I'm not fooling myself? Is it even possible to know? Or is it as the world thinks that faith is simply believing things against evidence? Well, we know better than that as we've been going through this series. We know that, in fact, faith is quite reasonable. True biblical faith is reasonable. Uh, Faith in other belief systems becomes unreasonable at some point, but true biblical faith is always reasonable. That isn't to say that it is arrived at solely by human reason, but there's nothing more reasonable than trusting God. If he says something's true, that makes it true. Well, how can we know? How can we have assurance? Well, God's word is not actually silent on the subject. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith actually has a chapter summarizing the Bible's teachings on assurance of grace and salvation. Its first paragraph says, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in a state of salvation. So we can fool ourselves. We can think God is blessing us and therefore likes us, when we have, especially if we have uh, things that that seem to be blessings in the world, of course, that come perhaps from God's common grace, but not necessarily from his saving grace. So, so, it says, so the confession rightly says, uh, hypocrites and other unregenerate men can deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions, fleshly presumptions. God likes me, right? Doesn't he? But the confession says, which hope of theirs shall perish... Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Now, key there is the word may, and we'll come to that later. It's just because you lack assurance doesn't mean that you lack salvation. It's possible that somebody who is saved isn't sure about it. But it's also possible to be sure about it. You may attain certainty in this life, uh, not by your own merits, but, but by seeing the evidence that God is working in you, that indeed you are saved. And that hope will never make you ashamed, as the confession rightly says. Some people do falsely assure themselves of salvation. Like the false believers in John 8 who said they were in God's favor because they had Abraham as their father. Jesus says, you are of your father. And they say, oh, you mean Abraham. And he says, no. And they, this is paraphrasing, and they say, oh, you must mean then God. We have God as our father. They presumptuously even dared to call God their father. But Jesus told them, you are of your father, the devil. 
There are likewise people today who think they're in God's favor, maybe because of who their parents were, or because they prosper in an earthly sense, or because their names are on some church roll, or because they got baptized. So we talked about this morning, baptism isn't an assurance of salvation. Maybe they answered an altar call, but they never really saw a change of heart evidenced by their, the fruits in their life. And they presumptuously think they're just fine. If there's never been a true change of heart which flows into a change of life, of course they have no reason to believe that, but people have been self-deceived and deceived by false teachers into thinking that they have salvation. Sometimes through a sense of fear or an attempt to please God by their own goodness, they appear to do things that are truly good according to God's word, and they do them in God's name. But as I mentioned before here in Matthew seven twenty-two and verse 23, also Jesus says this on that day, judgment day he's talking about, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They even do things that seem miraculous, right? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their names weren't written in the book of life. They never had a true change of heart. So as the confession says, their hope shall perish. There are more often people who, or as the scripture says, or as rather as the confession says, they're hypocrites and, and others who make these carnal presumptions. Maybe just because they think they're a quote unquote good person, that God will like them. Or, yes, I know I've sinned, but haven't I done some good things to outweigh it? Well, that hope will perish. Nevertheless, though some may falsely assure themselves, it is possible for a true saint, for a true believer, to have true assurance. As we see in 1 John, if we turn to chapter 5, in verse 13, we see these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So I want to build up your faith by the fact that you already have faith and therefore can know. It is possible to know, to be certain, that you have eternal life. Now, of course, John wouldn't have written that if it was certain that every believer already knew. right? So he says, I'm writing these things so that you can know. And of course, as we saw in our reading from chapter 2, we saw in verse 3 there, by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. So we can rejoice in that assurance when we see the Spirit's power in our lives as we learn to obey God. As we keep Christ's commandments all the more, then we can, as John says, know that we know Him. Of course, knowing God is the way that we know that we're in 
his kingdom. We have a true, intimate relationship with him. We can rejoice in that assurance. It's possible to have that assurance. When we see that Spirit's power in our lives, when we see that we're able to obey God, Romans 5.5 says that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So God gives the Holy Spirit to His people. His love is poured out into our hearts. And we see that manifest then in the things that we think and say and do. And that reflects the, the Greek well, the love of God. I said there, in, as it's in the New King James Version, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. The love of God has two sides of it, doesn't it? If you see that, the, that expression there, love of God, there's a noun and a, a prepositional phrase there with it. If I say I have love of God, well, that could mean that God loves me. It can also mean that I love God. Right? And it's a two-way street. Right? And if we see the love of God in our hearts, a love for God and manifest evidence that we have the love of God upon us, this is both God's love for us and our love for God, which the Holy Spirit has placed into our hearts. His very presence there is evidence of God's love for his people. And then we also reflect that love back to him. If you love God, you truly love him for who he really is, you have assurance that you have been saved. That God has given you grace. Because your natural state, as we've seen before, as we were talking about in Sabbath school this morning, in fact, we were talking about depravity. Your natural state, since mankind's fall into sin is to hate God. You might fool yourself into thinking you love God, but you love a God of your imagination and not the one who has revealed himself in Scripture and most fully in Jesus Christ. But if you love that God, you wouldn't do that unless God had already changed your heart, unless he has said, done as he said to Ezekiel, taken your heart of stone and given you that heart of flesh, that soft and pliable heart. Here's the difference between false and true assurance. As the confession puts it, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. In other words, it's not us guessing, right, by simply by uh, wishing it to be true. But an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces into which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, that is the guarantee of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. God gives infallible assurance, because as Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Right? If God has given you an assurance, it is sure. It's definitely guaranteed. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, that is, not with duplicity, honestly, with holiness, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Can you say, honestly, without pangs of conscience, not talking about being perfect here, but can you say honestly that you love the Lord? 
that you have become more holy over time, more like Christ over time, that you've become, say, more honest, as 2 Corinthians 1.12 there says, that you become more loving of neighbor, especially loving of Christ's church. Remember his command that we love one another? That came in the same context that he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In submission to proper authority, have you grown in that? These sorts of things give you assurance that the Holy Spirit is working in you. It's changing you. He's changing you. He's he's conforming you to the image of Christ. Now the other side of the coin is that a true believer is not necessarily always aware of that assurance. So if you lack that assurance, it doesn't mean you're not saved. But it is possible for you to have such assurance. So just because you're not sure doesn't mean you're lacking salvation. But if you are saved, you can reflect on these things and indeed come to a sense of assurance. The Confession puts it this way. This infallible assurance, so it's infallible. If God gives it, it's not a mistake. It's an infallible assurance. It says, This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. So in other words, it's not as if as soon as you have faith, you have assurance of salvation, that you're certain of it. You can have doubts. You can wait, the confession says, with long and with and conflict. You can have confliction within yourself with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. You don't need God to come down from heaven and appear to you, or send an angel to appear to you and say, you are my chosen one. You are one of my people. You can have it by ordinary reflection on the things going on in your life particularly internal reflection. What is going on in my heart? Do I bear more and more fruit of salvation? So the confession says, and therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to making his calling and election sure. Examine yourself, in other words, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness, in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance, so far as it is from inclining men to looseness. You may struggle to find assurance. That's why John said that he wrote his first epistle, that you may know. It's not certain that you will know, and so I'm writing this, that you might know, that you might have assurance. The assumption is that not every Christian knows he is saved. Otherwise, John would have had no reason to write the letter. But he say, I write this letter so that you can. See, look at these, reflect on these things. Are you bearing these fruits? Are you able to keep God's commandments more and more? If so, you may know that you know him. So it is possible by those ordinary means to be assured of salvation. And indeed, the confession gives us a reason why God might not give every believer full assurance immediately as soon as they become believers, so that we're not encouraged to looseness, so that we're not, so we don't think, well, it doesn't matter. I can just now behave as ever as I want. I had assurance at the time of my first profession of faith, and now I can do whatever I please. 
You don't need a vision from God or to hear a voice from heaven to assure you of your status in Christ. Those ordinary means are sufficient. But 1 Corinthians uh, 2.12 says we have received the Spirit of God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's presence is the evidence of this, and the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence is your obedience to God. Hebrews 6, 11-12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So by reading Scripture, by imitating godly men and women, by discerning the, the Spirit's work in you, you can have reasonable assurance of salvation. And so every Christian has the responsibility then to be self-examining and growing in that assurance, to be diligent in the pursuit of assurance by testing whether you can or even desire to do the works that God's Spirit produces in true believers. Do you have that desire? Do you see yourself doing it? 2 Peter 1.10, but be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. By these things, Peter means things he's referred to before in 1 Peter there, in 1 Peter 1, which include faith, knowledge, excuse me, yes, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness. Where he says, here, you're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while, if need be, you've grieved by various trials. I think I'm looking, I probably should be looking at Second Peter. Yes, Second Peter. I wrote First Peter in my notes. Second Peter, 5 through 8. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Galatians 5, 22-23 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. The things that we see are evidence of our being saved. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Is there peace in your life? Is there joy in the Holy Spirit? Does your love for God and for His church grow to these other qualities manifest in your life? Do you find yourself dying more and more into sin and living more and more unto righteousness as we find in 1 Peter 2, 21-25? For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. 
who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Are you renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions? Do you live a self-controlled life? That is, do your emotions control you or do you Bring them under reign. Do your temptations reign in you? Or does your love for God and desire not to offend Him rule? This doesn't mean that you don't stumble in sin, but do these things rule? Are you under the dominion of alcohol or some other substance? Or do you have self-control in those regards? Now, you might stumble in these things. And that might give you doubts. Doubts are not evidence of lack of salvation. But if you find that you can manifest these qualities more and more and you grow in them, you don't start off with all of them in perfection when you first have faith, you grow in them. As newborn babes grow into adults. If you find yourself growing in those things, then that's evidence the Holy Spirit is at work within you. As the confession says, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin, which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. You may have your assurance shaken. You may doubt. Usually it's because of negligence in pursuing assurance or by falling into a particular sin. But there might be some other reason that for his good purposes God withdraws your sense of assurance for a time. In those cases, your doubt is an instrument of discipline of God if it's because of your sin. It's usually to shake you, not to shake you out of your faith, but to shake you into returning to repentance, to bring you back to the Lord. He disciplines his children. We see in Psalm 32, David saying in verses 3 through 5, when, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God's hand was heavy upon him. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. It was like I was dried up from the inside. Then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
So sometimes a lack of assurance or feeling like you're under God's heavy hand or abandoned by God is actually God's way of getting you to return to him, to repent, to stop backsliding into your former sinful way of life. But though you may doubt, no true believer will utterly lose the fear of the Lord, the love for him, his children, so as to despair utterly. And no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand, as we saw before, if you are actually in his hand. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9, through 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Joel Arbiki uses the illustration of a young woman whose father abandoned her mother when she was a child. and Now she's deeply in love with a man who's asked her to marry him. She knows he's trustworthy. She sees evidence that he's trustworthy. But the world has taught her to doubt men. Can she actually trust a man? Her mother's experience with her father tells her, maybe I shouldn't. Well, she finally concluded, I trust you. I need to learn to trust you more. As that woman would grow in trusting her husband's love by the experience of walking through life with him, your walk with God should cause you to grow in assurance of his grace and salvation. As you trust him more, and thereby show other fruits that you belong to him. Do you see the fruits in your life that God is at work there? Do you see yourself growing in righteousness according to God's word? If so, that can only be by the working of the Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit indwells you, which means you are indeed regenerate, you are indeed saved, and you can never lose that status. So you can have assurance of grace and salvation. Well, let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that we would all have that assurance. We pray that if we ever lack it, that we would look within ourselves and see what sins we may need to repent of. We pray that you would work within us by your Spirit, changing us day by day and conforming us more and more to the image of your beloved Son, that indeed we might have assurance that we are his saved people. For we pray in his blessed name. Amen.